Hey, I'm Dante, and you are listening to the Smoke and Profit Podcast. Thank you so much for being with me and my lovely wife, Lola. Now, today is special. Well, every day is special, but today is more special because of what we're about to talk about. Drum roll, please. Yep, today's episode is all about relationship goals. Relationship goals have been trending for what seems like eons, and rightfully so. I mean, who wants to deal with bad breakups, being catfished, falling in love with someone toxic, or worse. It's all a waste of time. But the reality is, as much as we want good relationships, many of us don't know how to achieve that. It's not hard to understand why either. We don't have good relationships with ourselves, our friends, our coworkers, and this is an unpopular opinion, but many of us even struggle in our relationship with God. But look up friends, we've got you covered. In today's episode, We've enlisted the help of a relationship expert with 30 plus years experience. That's right. This man is a genius when it comes to relational health. And he's very honest too. So without further ado, allow us to introduce you to Apostle Daryl O'Neill. In this episode, he's going to tell you some basics for having a healthy relationship so that you don't waste time on relationships that aren't relationship goal worthy. Use this episode to find healthy love, identify toxic love, and make your existing relationships better. You ready? Let's get started. You are listening to the Smoking Profit Podcast with your hosts Dante and Lola, who are here and ready to resource you spiritually, creatively, and socially so that you can live life and live life better. So that you can do life and do life better with inspiration that is actionable, kick back, and listen. Because your life is about to be transformed. We're glad that you have taken the initiative to talk about relationships, especially for unmarried and single people. We appreciate you for coming in and taking your perspective and what you've learned, because anyone who's listening to this is going to be able to apply it in any situation that they're in. If it's a work relationship, if it's a relationship with a spouse, if it's a relationship with a child, it's going to teach you to communicate better and also teach you just how to be a better person relationally. So let's go ahead and get into it, unless you want to share something out. Nope. I am ready to serve you guys. Just lead me where you want to, and we'll make it happen. So let me ask you this question. What prompted you to get down to the bottom of relationships and how singles and unmarried people can be better prepared for marriage? What was it? The truth is going through a bad marriage is hell. And if there's anything that I can contribute to life, I want to make sure that when people choose to enter the sacrament of marriage, that they went in eyes fully open so that they knew what they were encountering. And I recognized that over the years that I had been living, there really has never been anything that ministers to the unmarried in a kingdom-driven place. Most singles ministry is more about trying to match make or go bowling. Mm -hmm. But the Lord began to deal with me about the fact that unmarried people needed substance and they didn't need to always hear about uh, focusing, quote, on the sin dimension. 
I'm seeking to build the sun dimension, which produces health. And so that was my deal. I didn't want anybody to go through what I went through. Because even when I got divorced from Denise, I thought I would be the happiest dude in the world. But once I actually got the divorce decree, it was a death. And I really was more sad than anything when I thought I was about to live the way I expected I could live. I'm free now. The ball and chain is gone. And it wasn't like that. And that feeling stuck with me. And I never wanted to see people go down that road. Apostle O'Neill, you said that when you married Denise, your amazing wife, the first time you married her as a single man, and you maintain that attitude during the marriage, what would you say having the single perspective was in a marriage? What does that look like so that people that are listening can understand what it may look like for them? Sure. When we got married, the courtship that we were involved in had moved beyond what was safe we began to violate space. (laughs) And I was a virgin. She was a virgin. I was not going to move into sexual sin. And I felt that the proper thing to do was to get married. And that was not necessarily the wise decision. To specifically answer your question, though, what a single person's mentality looks like in a married person is they're selfish. I was thinking about myself. I would go to work after I would get off of work. The gang was going out for cocktails after work and I would go with them. And I would prefer others before I preferred her. And the truth of the matter is, I thought more about me and my friends than I did about the responsibility of being a husband to my wife. And that was simply because I never grew up understanding the responsibilities of being a husband. So I got married so that we would not be fornicating. It's legalized sex. Which unfortunately, if I may say, a lot of people get married because they love God. They know that they have violated sexual purity Mm -hmm. in the relationship. And so then they get married. Can I say very straightforwardly, that Mm -hmm. is not the reason to get married. Yeah, that's really good because... I've heard that. A lot of Christians will spin it in that way. They'll use the scripture where Paul says, better to marry than to burn with lust or to burn with desire. We rush along into decisions where our members are thinking for us. And when I say our members, I'm talking about our body parts. And we're not necessarily thinking about, okay, what is marriage beyond sex? So let me ask you that. What is marriage? Before we get married, what should we think about? What should we have in mind? What should be essential to us making that decision? That's an amazing question. And for me now, as a born-again believer, and again, I'm sure that those who listen to your broadcast will vary believers and non-believers, but I will say this, in order to enter into this vocation or sacrament called marriage, it must be understood that it is a spiritual endeavor. And to not prepare spiritually 
to walk in this vocation would be to do a disservice to yourself and to the person that you would be betrothed to. For me, I had to look at marriage in its original intent when God created Adam and Eve. And what I had to consider was that a marriage in which two people fully understood that God created each of us with a specific purpose and that if we're committed to being people with the same purpose to help each other achieve their purpose, then we could have a happy marriage. And unfortunately, without a real understanding, and if I can just make it very plain, you and your husband are both people created in the image of God. Mm -hmm. You both have purposes in your life. And if either of you chose not to value that both of you had purpose, if at any place you decide, I'm not going to desire to help you fulfill who God made you to be, it's going to create problems in the relationship. And that is something that unfortunately many relationships experience. Marriage is a partnership. It's teamwork. So you say that marriage is a partnership and it's teamwork. What advice would you give to a single person trying to find that person that they could create a partnership with, create a team with? What should they be doing first before they even begin to interact with the person that they're interested in or planning on courting? Absolutely. Great question. I would say being that I am from the realm that I am, I'm always going to see the spiritual background. And I think that what I'm sharing though is universal for all persons who want to have healthy relationships. I really believe that every person needs to be settled in their identity. And the reason that I say that is because if I do not know who I am, I will perhaps live out of a perspective or a purpose that's not whole. And so I have a friend, Pastor Claude Bevere. He wrote an amazing book that I recommend to all men called The Blueprint, A Man's Journey to discovering identity, intimacy, and destiny. What this book has helped me to do was to reframe what a man is like in the eyes of Christ. And John 7, 29, when Jesus is standing and talking to those who many in the crowd wanted to kill him, he had a confidence of who he was in love and who he was loved by. And that verse says, I know him and I am from him and he sent me. And if I were to talk that out in just plain language, Jesus said, I know my father. And when we know our father, fathers help us to gain identity. So father is love. I know my father. I am from him. So I know now my purpose is to live out loving others. And he sent me. Now I can walk in what my purpose is. Before, when I got married to Didis, I didn't even know who I was. I was a little boy. I was not a man. What that did in the relationship was my wife was more mature than I was. And when we got married, she actually loved me and her trying to help me become a man, it put us at odds because I didn't know who love was. So I could not determine that she was loving me. I thought she was nagging me and trying to boss me. The truth was I was a little boy rather than a man. I didn't know who I was. I was really deficient in my capacity to love her. That's really good. So you've said so many nuggets, but just to recap what we've gone over so far and what I've learned, just 
in this short amount of time we've been talking is marriage is spiritual. Yes. Marriage is spiritual and preparation for marriage starts there. And the number one thing for us to focus on when preparing and looking for and dating or courting, whatever you call it, is knowing our own identity. Yes. Because if we don't know our identity going into a marriage, it's going to be very, very difficult. And most importantly, if I can just highlight that piece, knowing that we came from God, God is love. And if I am a believer... If I'm a new creation in Christ, I am to be a reflection of my father. The analogy I usually use is the analogy between the natural sun and what we see at night. During the daytime, when we see the sun in all of its splendor and all of its majesty, at night there is an amazing beauty when there is a full moon. But the moon is a reflection of the sun. And we have to recognize that we are called to be reflections of Father who is love. Many people are unfortunately not aware of that. So we tend to live life driven by fear. And there is no fear in love. I would not have wanted to remarry someone who didn't know God's love and didn't have the intent of putting God first in their life because I know what it was to be in a relationship with someone who wasn't set on that. It was super difficult. Mm -hmm. So the number one thing that helps Dante and I as a married couple that's fairly new to being married is God because he will check both of us. Yes, he Um, will. There have been times where, and we're honest, where Dante has bothered me and he's walked back to me and said, I apologize. And he's been apologizing and where I will want to say, smack my teeth and kiss and say, leave me alone. And where the Holy Spirit will remind me of what love is. Love keeps no record of wrong. Mm You know, you have to forgive him as many times as I forgive you. Love bears all things. That is our foundation. A lot of people have this idea, or maybe we don't think that far ahead when we're preparing to get married and we're all excited about building our lives together, what it's really like when two people come together. Yeah. Like Dante and I are still trying to transition (laughs) everything into we're one One. unified front. And we've realized that it's a process that's going to last our whole lifetime. But when we first got married and we moved in together the same week, three days after we got married, we moved in together and man, it was crazy for the first 30 days. Yes, it was. It was like, (laughs) it was was a complete roller coaster. Yes. I don't know if you've ever seen Martin the episode where him and Gina moved in together and they both had like double of everything. Yeah. We, we had like double of everything in the natural, but then also double of everything in the spirit. In the spirit, we were like, no, I'm going this way. And he's like, no, I'm going this way. Okay. So it's taking time for us to get through that transition. Mm-hmm. And then it's taking time for us to make other transitions. But God is our foundation. His love is our foundation. So that's the only thing that's helping us. So let me say this, and first, I applaud you guys for your transparency, for your audience. I've learned over the years, that's how people really are able to grow and have actionable points so that they can walk some things out. Definitions are very important to me. The idea of walking through the transition, selfishness is what marriage really is designed to kill. 
I want to make that as a statement that could be tweetable. I would say yeah. tweet yes. that. <laughs> <laughs> we're both typing it in our phones as we speak. Marriage is designed to kill selfishness, and most people don't know it because in our culture, a wedding is celebrated, but a wedding is not a marriage. The work that is necessary to help two people who are contemplating getting married, and if I were preparing for marriage afresh, the first thing I would do is determine my level of selfishness. If I'm selfish, self-centered, that is not an attribute of love because love benefits another at the expense of ourself. Love is selfless, not selfish. And so I've got to measure honestly how selfish I am because two selfish people will destroy each other when they have to bring their uniquenesses because both parties are unique. Mm -hmm. Marriage will highlight the differences which are not wrong. It just takes love to move forward through because any difference can be appreciated if it's a God-given part of your uniqueness. But that's not the way that the chattery is in Babylon. <laughs> Once there starts being problems, rather than allow love to create a heart that prefers the other, if my heart is selfish, I'm gonna protect myself and that'll be operating out of fear. And whenever fear is permitted to live in a relationship, a friendship, courting relationship, marriage, fear is the doorway to all toxic emotions and conversation. Fear opens the door for pride. Fear will open the door for anger. Fearful foundation opens the door for mistrust. And once trust has been compromised, that's when the relationship, because it's all fear-based. Fear is the source of all toxicity in communication that will try to destroy relationships. So my thought is preparing for me, I got to measure how selfish I am. And that can be seen in the courtship process. Mm -hmm. It just magnifies itself once you jump the broom. I have to know what is my definition of love and what is my intended definition of love? What is my definition of marriage? Because one of the things that I say often is my definition will determine my conclusion or my destination. So you and I can say we love each other, but if your definition of love is different from mine, we will end up moving in two different destinations. These are some of the things that are important. And the last thing I would probably say is, what is my definition of a friend? Because at the end of the day, I want to be marrying my best friend. That doesn't mean that everything is the same. I want to marry my best friend because I don't see myself doing life. Out of everybody I can choose, I choose to commit to you because you're my best friend. Friendship is the most important thing in the courtship process. Those are things that I would offer to people who are courting. That's good. Let me just give you a narrative that is very clear in the Word of God, that in most church settings, it's never dealt with regularly through the Sunday morning ministry, which I believe is why relationships are challenged in the church. But think of it this way. The nature of God himself is friend. This is illustrated through after he creates Adam, male and female, 
he regularly comes to interact and relate with them and communicate with them as he has created them. So their relationship, even though Adam is considered a son, the highest level of friendship is sonship. And Jesus actually intimates that in John chapter 15, when he talks about, I no longer call you servants, because servants do not know what their master is doing. He says, I call you friend, because everything my father tells me, I tell you. There is this amazing, divine, powerful place that we must develop in called friendship. God walked with Noah, and that walking with is the connotation of being friends. He walked with Enoch until Enoch was just translated. Abraham is called the friend of God. So there is this earthly friendship stuff that has tried to dilute the power that is associated with sonship connected with friendship. That, I believe, is a necessary component for having a healthy marriage, because greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friend. So if I actually am marrying someone who is not to be my best friend or is my best friend, I will not have the sacrificial component necessary to yield in order to see life come. Yeah, that's really good. We won't have the capacity to yield in order to see life come. That is so, so good. I'm actually glad you broke all of that down and explained it. It just made me think about your book, Into the Unmarried, I Say, Things to Consider Before Saying I Do. In your book, you draw that clear mark of delineation, that clear distinction between relationships from a Babylonian perspective and relationships from the perspective of Zion or God's perspective. That goes to demonstrate that this Babylonian ideal is in us when it comes to friendship, Mm. because a lot of friendships are selfish. It's based on how a person makes me feel. Mm -hmm. If that person doesn't make me feel great, then I'm done with you. I want to leave you alone. Mm -hmm. Or if friends with a person and it's not like that, when we have conflict, I'm very quick to cut you off versus trying to work through the conflict. So, Yes, wow. absolutely. If we don't marry our best friend, and here's the thing, just in case any of your listeners might be thinking there is just the one, your soulmate. I believe that that's kind of a stereotype. Mm-hmm. I believe that any two believers who are friends, who have common interests, who together through counseling work out a plan of action and they commit to serving out, can I say it this way, out serving each other Mm -hmm. as servants of the Lord, their love is expressed. I believe any two believers can get married and have success at it. But the thing that occurs when we do not marry our best friend And we have a best friend, especially if it's of the opposite sex, it invites insecurity. Because if we look at what a friend is, a friend does have common interests. We tend to tell our friends everything. We tend to run to our friends if there is an emergency. 
So if you and I are in a relationship and someone else has access that makes my spouse second, that is going to become problematic. And I've heard it said, well, he shouldn't be so insecure or she shouldn't be so insecure. No, the very fact that there is someone else that there is already capacity for laying one's life down for, and it ain't me, that will give the adversary access to my thinking that can tear at the fabric of our relationship. If there are best friends that are of the opposite sex, because the question might come up, if you do have a best friend of the opposite sex, that person should be integrated in such a way that that person honors and respects the spouse and never violates that posture. And if the best friend can't make that connection, then that person doesn't need to be the best friend because it's going to be a source of pain. Wow. Completely agree with you on that. I've learned that the reason I'm able to share is because a part of the pain that led to my divorce was that my wife would constantly feel second to other people. Mm. I didn't recognize because I couldn't see it. And some of it may have just been my pride, but I didn't see that I was making her second until something happened in the church. I was a junior deacon in my early 20s, and I'm the kind of guy that wants to help and serve and be a blessing. And people would come to me and ask me to drop them off on the way home. And I felt like it's on our way. We can do this. This is kind. This is godly. But I never asked my wife, how do you feel, honey, about us dropping anybody off? Mm. It wasn't that she had a problem with it. It was that I would make a decision and she could be tired. She might feel, I don't want to drop anybody off. And that's not a bad thing, but I never even gave her the option. And one day that thing hit and it hit me like a ton of bricks. How many times I had done that and wounded her because I didn't put her first. I put mm -hmm. others first and it opened my eyes. It's not a kind thing. That's good. And I just want to say for the listeners, men don't just do that. Women do that too, because I've done that to Dante and I had to get checked on it. It's just a matter of us both coming together and making decisions in our head and not communicating and even asking for their input or their thoughts. So women, you can do that too. That's what that being single looks like, even though you're married. That's what it looks like. It, it is not involving the one who I should be involving and making decisions as if they don't matter. Mm -hmm. That's the wow. perfect definition, and which is why I know we got the right person talking well, today because you're actually able to break this stuff down so that people can see it and see where maybe this is happening in their lives and then say there's opportunity for me to be the best me in this area. So yes. thank you. You're welcome. You've said so many things, but something that I think about is the perspective that you have and the heart that you have for unmarried people. I can imagine you just have so many nuggets for people that may be struggling with marriage. So if you were speaking to Dante and I, and you were giving us some advice because we were having problems putting down our own uniqueness and transitioning into one person, what would you 
say to us if we're at the point of I'm done? I don't know why I married him. And he's like, I don't know why I married her. What would you say to us to help us really make the best decision for us? That's a powerful question. Now, my answer is going to be interesting, but I think it's something that everyone who is getting married or who has gotten married needs to take a look at. And in the heat of life, and things going on, we don't normally take a step back and consider God in the midst of it. So here's what I would say to you both. What did you promise each other on the day that you exchanged your vows? Mm -hmm. Because that's another one of those words that is lightly thrown around the word covenant. And so for me, I had to look at what is a covenant? What is the marriage ceremony really about? Why does God, quote, hate divorce. I want to see the supernatural, but I believe it can be seen practically. The thing that I believe Holy Spirit showed me concerning this and why I would say go back to your vows is because when you got married, this was an exchange of promises before God, before witnesses, and perhaps before a congregation. Whoever those persons were, we made promises to each other. And the thing is, is that a real friend is faithful to their word. What we're really looking at that many people don't look at during the courtship phase and sometimes neither during the marriage phase is, what is my value to keeping my word? Because lack of trust destroys the friendship. It destroys and attacks faithfulness, which when I consider the word faithful, these are some synonyms. Loyal, dedicated, devoted, believable, committed, and dependable. When I am telling you I love you and I'm standing before God and witnesses, I'm making a promise these attributes are a part of love. Faithfulness is a character trait of love. And love does not lie. Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. The scriptures over and over again talk about making vows and keeping our vows. With God, keeping our promise matters. So much so in the book of Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews chapter 6, right around verse 13, the author of Hebrews is making a point concerning the promise that God made to Abraham, that he looked for someone to hold himself accountable to his promise. He couldn't find anybody, so he swore by himself because he doesn't lie. So the key becomes... What did we promise each other? When I counsel for young couples, mm -hmm. I just tell them right up front, before we even start the counseling process, listen, I'll walk with you. I'll do whatever I need, but I just need to know y'all not going to lie to each other. We are not getting ready to go through these counseling sessions and you be dishonest. And then we go before people because you want me to do the wedding. You want me to prophesy. Don't lie to each other. Because if you are not planning on keeping your word, y'all shouldn't do this. God is not a liar. The scripture says he hates divorce. Mm -hmm. Well, 
A divorce basically is saying we stood before people, we made promises, and we didn't tell the truth. And I need people to know that's what hinders communication, honest, vulnerable, transparent communication gives life to the relationship. So I encourage couples all the time, you have to practice speaking honorably. You have to practice speaking and valuing the other, even when something is different and don't predicate it on what they do. This is who I am as a son of love. I am an imitator of my father. I reflect him. He is love. So that's what I do. What did y'all promise? And then I wait. And if you promise, so which one of these promises did you lie about? And if you didn't lie, let's make it good. And if you make it good because you both made promises, you both should be happy because this is what we promised. Wow. Okay, I'm done. Back to you. <laughs> Look, what you just said was, it was powerful because just the statement, what promises did you make to each other? That's a reminder to married couples that you set this thing up. You, you stood before God and said, hey, we're going to do this together. So everything you said just kind of was like a, a nail in, I don't want to say a nail in the coffin. It hit me. A nail in the covenant. <laughs> good catch. I know, right? She's so good. Might help me. No, that's my go-to, which if I could say is the reason why all couples who are considering marriage need godly counsel. Mm -hmm. What counseling is for, which many people, and especially men, men don't like counseling because they get their pride all up and can't no man tell me what to do, how to live my life, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard it in 28 years of ministry, but this is the value of counsel. It's the act of exchanging opinions and ideas. Mm. That very act in itself can be beneficial because in a marriage, there has to be an exchange of ideas. It's not one person's way, my way or the highway. It teaches us how to reason together. It's advice and guidance, which is solicited from a person who may be knowledgeable in an arena that we're trying to make a good decision. But another definition of counsel is simply this, a wise plan of action. Every couple before getting married needs to have a plan of action. They need to have actualized on paper, this is how I see us as friends growing in our relationship. So when I counsel, I try to encourage them to look at one year, three years, five years. Where do we see ourselves spiritually, where we may be living, what we may have done financially as stewards of our time, our finances and that like. And again, going back to what we said when we talk about the promises we made, if you have a vision, Lola, for what the marriage would be, and Dante has a vision, now what we do is we look at both of what we see a happy marriage as being, 
and then work to put together to make one plan and agree that we'll work that plan out. And so in that dream that you have about what a happy marriage is and Dante, you have in your mind, in that plan now is my purpose what I feel like I'm called to achieve. And then all of that comes into the one plan. That's what counsel should do for those who are receiving godly counsel. That's really good. It sounds like Dante and I have some homework for ourselves. Yes, we do. (laughs) That is so good. Something I was wondering, you've been married for 38 years. You've talked to countless couples. What would you say are your three biggest takeaways from your experience and knowledge in talking to couples. Communication matters. Communicate, communicate, communicate is the first thing that I would say because what usually attempts to happen in a marriage relationship is that a voice can become muted. And once either party in the relationship moves to the place where they're no longer sharing their thoughts, sharing their ideas, we lose intimacy. And when there is no talking, usually that's the reason why many marriages go sexless. Because intimacy is not sex. Intimacy is communication. And through communication, healthy, honorable communication, the sex will flow. Mm. It shows why many people who are not married end up in sex. They're always talking. They're sharing everything. They're talking, 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 talking. See see into me. The moment we stop letting people see into us, know our thoughts, know our feelings, know our perspectives, what we're doing is we're closing a door. And words are spirit. Jesus said in John 6 and 63, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that makes alive. The words I speak are spirit and they are life. When each party in the relationship chooses to withhold communication, it's ministering death, which is separation. The physical death is the separation of the soul and spirit from the body. But spiritual death is separation. So talk talk, talk sweetly, encourage, affirm, build each other with words. So that would be the first thing. Number two is to protect my joy. The Bible intimates that the joy of the Lord is our strength and it takes courage to do what's right. It takes courage to love. So when life comes and seeks to put us in a place where we are no longer joyful, that attacks our ability to have hope. It attacks our faith. It moves us into the place of fear. And once we hit the place called fear, that is not of love. And usually, again, as we talked about earlier, every attribute that is connected to fear will seek to destroy and produce dysfunction. That's another thing that I've learned. You've got to stay joyful. You've got to stay hopeful. Love hopes all things, bears all things, believes all things. When your joy has been attacked and it becomes deficient, it will cause you to not want to persevere. 
So joy is the second thing that you've got to contend and maintain joy within your own life and within the life of your family. It gives life. The third thing I would probably say is keep your word. That's making promises. I'm going to be somewhere at a certain time. I'm going to pick up the children. Whatever we say that we're going to do, don't overcommit. That's me. I'm a sanguine. I love people. And one of the things that I was doing to hurt my wife that I didn't really get until it created enough pain to where I had to engage it, I would overcommit. And too much overcommitting is lying, in a sense. The intent is really not to lie. But at the end of the day, I can't keep my word. The way the Spirit of God moves is through truth. Every time I move away from truth, I don't give Holy Spirit the chance to be my advantage. Jesus said in John 14, it's necessary for me to go away. It's to your advantage, is one translation that I go away because if I go away, I can then send another comforter. So Holy Spirit mm. is an advantage to us, but he is the spirit of truth. So I've got to do everything I can to stay in the lane of honoring my word because mm. that allows Holy Spirit to always have access. Y'all pulling on good stuff out of here. Y'all pulling up stuff that's down there, you know, at the bottom of the dredge. You know how when you stir the Kool-Aid and mm -hmm. or the lemonade and it done settled down there, y'all stirring up the good stuff. We have a lot of notes. This is so, so, so good. Yeah, they're coming running on two pages or at least. So if you hear us pause, we're just taking it in. Okay, it's not a problem. I get it. This is what I do for a living. <laughs> Look, Sometimes I'm on radio shows, and by the time we get done, everybody in the studio is bleeding. And I was like, I didn't do We were just talking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're just having a conversation. It ain't directed. There are just things we need to think about. And when you have the right people who can stir us to look honestly, internally, it brings growth. Mm, I like that. Yes. When you have people that stir you to look honestly and internally, it brings growth. And we that, all want those types of people around us. That's the ministry of Christ. That's actually one of my prayers because that's who Jesus was as a friend. Every time he had conversations with people, he wasn't trying to say, well, this is what's wrong with you. That's what's wrong with you. Da -da. He had the ability to ask the questions or lead us to the questions that would make us look internally because nobody wants to be told what to do. Mm -hmm. So I believe that in every relationship, both parties should pray and ask God that we can be that kind of friend to our spouse. Think about this for a second. Mm -hmm. This is one of my favorite stories. John chapter four uh, is the story of the woman at the well. Here she is a woman who has been characterized by maybe not always making sober decisions when it comes to men. She comes into contact with Jesus, who is love, who goes out of his way to meet her. She's a Samaritan. He's a Jew. So now we got a prejudice situation going on here. Jewish men don't talk to Samaritan women. That was her testimony. He knows everything about her but has this conversation with her because his intent is to help her heal. He knows she's broken. And in their conversation, they began to talk about living water. 
if you knew who the gift of God was, you'd have asked him for this living water that you'd never thirst again. She got all his baggage with her now. For those who are listening to the broadcast, he goes to a city called Sychar. The name of this city means liar or drunken. So the characteristic, the nature of the people in the city is either they don't value truth or they are inebriated in their decision-making capacity. And love sees her as she is. He never points out her issues or anything like that. He speaks to the son in her. Wow. After they talk, she says, give me this water, this living water that will become a fountain that I'll never thirst again. After she says that, then he asks this question, or where is your husband? And at that moment, that was the question that made her have to look inward. And in that moment, she had two options, lie to him or tell him the truth. She chose to go counter the culture of her city. She said, I don't have a husband. Mm. Jesus said, truly said, you've had five husbands and the one you with is not yours. And so at that moment, this is the moment of her transformation because Jesus asked a question that permitted her to look inwardly and discover truth, Mm. which was actually the living water. Anytime we give in to truth and yield to truth, what's honest, what's true, it becomes living water for us. And fear will never allow us to drink living water. Fear is set against love, which is why I said (laughs) the enemy is always fear. Don't be afraid. Let love win. This woman's life was transformed. Jesus never said anything about promiscuity or any of the things that we would probably hear preached in a church. He saw her as who she was. He led her to discover what was broken. And because she met him, I call it the seventh man, (laughs) because intimacy is about communication, not necessarily sex. The seventh man in the story is Jesus. And when she talks to him, her whole perspective and relationships with men change. Now she runs and meet guys who probably know who she is. Come meet a man. Ah. He's the one who exhibits and teaches men how to be men. Men how to talk to women. Men who can unlock the queen in them. I'm done right there. Yeah, like we need to just give you all our money right now. (laughs) Drop the whole microphone, throw it out the door, everything. That was good. I'm glad you touched on that. It brings me back to something you said in the beginning. Your perspective when it comes to tackling singles ministry or the unmarried ministry is coming to people from a sun dimension. You said which produces health and not a sin dimension. It's the same thing that you just told us and introduced us to in scripture where Jesus was talking to that woman and caused her to be enlightened and receive revelation. 
I always have conversations with God in my head. I really don't like to talk a lot, to be honest with you. I don't like talking in public. I would prefer to just sit up with my family, talk to them when I have to, and just sit in my thoughts and make my little notes and write my little journals of the conversations God is having with me. So I remember probably a year or two years ago, God started challenging my mind to go beyond some of the forms of evangelism I'd seen. And I've seen on TV evangelism where they introduce them to their sin in order to do that. And they don't do that in a way that's like Nathan and David. They don't come to them like Nathan did with the parable, you know, or like Jesus did when he was talking to the woman at the well and asking questions and inviting her to think and inviting her to look within herself, which just kind of like, well, aren't you a sinner? <laughs> You're doing this. And God, and God like challenged me, even though I hadn't done that kind of stuff. He challenged me. He's like, sometimes you introducing people to me is not a matter of you calling out their defects or what you believe they're doing wrong. Sometimes it's just you introducing them to another way of thinking, this way of thinking that I'm showing you. Sometimes it's just you inviting them and giving them the space to think. So when people ask me questions, sometimes I hesitate to just tell them upright, well, you should do this or you should do that. I'll like ask them questions and I'll invite them to think the same way that I do my children. Because if I just feed you information and if I tell you what to do without having you go within yourself and really, really think about, well, what do I wanna do? What do I want? Why am I doing this? Where am I going with this? If I do that, then when I'm gone, when I'm not around my children and it comes a new situation where they need to apply principles that I taught them, it's going to be difficult for them to do it Mm, because I haven't actually given them that space and that opportunity. Like think, you know, use your mind, go within yourself, allow Holy Spirit to come and work with you and give you insight, the spirit of truth, the one who leads and guides us into everything that we need to know. There's a script in Ephesians, I think it's chapter one. It says that the Holy Spirit acts as a deposit and the deposit guarantees our inheritance. So when I thought about that, the first time I read it, I read it in like the NIV version, but when I thought about that, I thought about banking because I worked at a bank at the time. Mm -hmm. I understood that in banking, the banks have a set amount of money that's supposed to go to the FDIC that the feds are supposed to get. It's 10% of their deposit. So that in the event the bank fails, there's money to cover it. So when I thought about like a deposit and how that label FDIC, it means so much. I thought about what the Holy Spirit is to us. Oh, wow. He's a deposit. That means that as long as I'm allowing, like you said, allowing truth to be present, then I fully activate the advantage of the Holy Spirit in my life. And as long as I fully activate the advantage of the Holy Spirit, then whatever promises God has for me, I'm guaranteed to get those things. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. I'm so growing in my understanding of relation. Okay, so if I can just drop this little bomb here and then I want to say something about what I feel is destroying relationship in a Christian way. It's the mixture of the old covenant and the new covenant. And one of the things that I saw through the life of the Apostle Paul in many of his writings, we hear him constantly 
challenging the new believers, the born again, to not allow the Judaizers to come and bring them back under the law. The reason this is significant is because the law, when it's in us, it makes us more conscious of people's sin and their wrong and dealing with that. Whereas the new covenant, Holy Spirit is the one who is my helper to remind me who I was always made to be. When I talk about Jesus speaking to the son in the woman, he knew who she was supposed to be in him. When we are bound by legalism and the law, that is what makes people spend time trying to convince people of their sin rather than understanding that what Jesus completed was a return for them to live as they were always meant to live. And that we might be living beneath and relating beneath our privileges. And so when we're dealing with people who have any little bit of the law in us, what it makes us is critical, condemning, fault-finding, petty, and vengeful, because that was the nature of the law. But when we are free from the law and free from the Torah, we're able to walk under the new law which is the commandment that Jesus gave through the finished work. A new commandment I give to you, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If I see God through the eyes of Jesus and not the law, my relationships will be better. Many people's relationships are being destroyed because people are mixing the law with grace. Oh, wow. I think that's very important because the way we see God is the way we relate to people. Yes. And what I believe is that people have seen God as angry, critical, judgmental, us having to perform for him and not seeing very clearly that he is not condemning, he is not fault finding. And it's really crazy that if we can live a life based upon loving God and becoming an imitator of him, that's when our relationships are going to have greater health. Mm, that's actually my burden. I love how God doesn't tell us everything all at once. It's like he's always unveiling something to us. And as we're responsible, he'll show us more. So like yeah. when I first started The Smoking Prophet, God told me, I want you to take the conversations you have with me and put them on a platform where you can share them with the world. And he said this specifically, I want you to do it in a way that people that believe in me can understand it and people that don't believe in me can understand it. I want you to talk very plainly. I want you to talk very simply. And I didn't understand that. But as I grew and I went on this love journey, I went yeah. on a love journey Apostle yeah. O'Neill for like yeah. three years where God showed me, he was like the first year, he said, I was showing you how I loved you. Mm -hmm. And in that first year, I learned that God's love was just this thing. I couldn't do anything about it. I couldn't stop it. I remember there was a time that I'd done something immoral and I felt bad about it. And I was crying to God and I was telling him, I'm filthy, I'm nasty. And he's like, I want you, give me you. You know what I'm saying? He's like, yeah, I want you. yeah. 
this is all I want. And then I remember he spoke a scripture to me and I heard him say to my heart, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So like that first year, he taught me what love was, what it really, really meant for him to love me and what his love really was. And then the second year, he taught me how to love other people. And I remember during this time I rode the bus and I would often see all types of people from people that worked at the company I worked for to people that had no place to live to people that had jobs that some people would say this is beneath us. But I developed a love for people. And I remember I would just talk to strangers and I hated it. And sometimes while talking to strangers after it was over, I would feel naked and uncovered like I was completely naked. And mm -hmm. God was just stripping me down in that process. Like, no, I want you to love people like I love them. I mm -hmm. want you to have compassion. Yes. Yes. For humanity. Yes. And then, yes. Then the last thing he taught me how to, to love and be prepared for marriage. It was like the second year where this was happening. He went back and showed me what he was doing. Like we're the first year it was all about him. Second year was about people. And then as I went into the third year, he was like, I'm going to take you into love for a partner. Like the year after I met Dante. But I say that to say, God is slowly unveiling his burden for me and his burden it's for me to present him as who he truly is. If there is anything that does grieve the heart of God, it's to have himself misrepresented to people. And the truth is, unfortunately, when it comes to the scriptures, the view of the scriptures is usually not going to consider that Christ is the exact representation of who Abba has always been. It's an interesting thing. We're on a journey right now where I'm detoxing our church from legalism. Literally for about a year, we're growing in some areas, but I've had to take a look. First Corinthians chapter 13 is called the love chapter, right? I'd like to suggest to you that one of the things that Paul says right around about verse 11 is he says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I reasoned or understood as a child, but he says, when I became a man, I put away childish things. In the context of the Apostle Paul's life, his conversion from being the top of the food chain in legalism. Think about this. The testimony, I think, in the book of Philippians chapter 3, I believe, when he's warning the church at Philippi to beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the circumcision, or basically speaking of those who would come and try to take them back under the law. He testifies that he is a Hebrew of Hebrews concerning the law of Pharisee. He's laying out his resume, as it were. And we recognize that he had great influence and was killing Christians mm. in the name of God. He was the top of the food chain in the law and legalism. So on the Damascus Road, what we really have is the conflict or meeting of two covenants. The old covenant, which was fulfilled in Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, he was initiating the new covenant. The way that people saw God was about to change tremendously, and it is expressed most in the conversion of Saul to Paul. 
He becomes the first spirit-led believer. He's the one who presents to us the real heart of Abba, being about unity, getting away from sectarianism and division and every ism, being carnal, making one minister greater than another. But these are all new covenant revelations. But people constantly want to bring people back under the law to see God in a way that he was never meant to be seen. Moses got kept out of the promised land because he misrepresented God to Israel. God told him, speak to the rock, not strike the rock. That mm -hmm. anger was a misrepresentation of God. God is the God of Shalom. And that's what I've been doing, Lola, with the broadcast. So if you choose to recommend a gathering of kings and priests, that is, even though I reach out to the unmarried, it is, as you have said, my teachings will minister to all types of relationship across the board, siblings, husband and wife, courting, married, teamwork in the church because it is the heart of father that values friendship, harmony, unity, community, a people, a nation. These are all ideas that originate with God who is love. I do a lot of the teachings that I've shared with you here on that page. So I would highly recommend it for, especially for men who want to grow relationally. This doesn't happen by osmosis. We have to hear and hear and hear and learn and be intentional about developing the skills that will allow us to love our wives and ladies learning how to speak in a way to men that don't activate the fool in the man, but activates the king in the man. That's good. <laughs> I like that. We recommend Apostle Daryl O'Neill to you, audience in general. We recommend his Facebook page, A Gathering of Kings and Priests. And we also recommend his amazing book, and I'm sure there will be many more to come, but the book, Into the Unmarried, I Say, Things to Consider Before Saying I Do. This conversation has been amazing. We're super happy that you allowed us to speak with and just to share your nuggets of wisdom, your experience, even some pains that you turned into great points for growth and learning. Thank you for sharing it with us. Apostle O'Neill. Thank you so much for giving us your time. It's been amazing to have this conversation with you again. I remember the first conversation we had where you were asking me, was I dating or was I courting? And at the time I didn't know. And I was like, ah, I just talking. <laughs> I read your book and I was like, oh no, I'm courting. I had to learn that. So thank you because every time I have a conversation with you, I'm learning something new. So for our audience, this is somebody that you do want to listen to because he has advice. He has things that you can learn from to help make a better you. I want to thank you both for the kind invitation to be with you and to share some ideas. I hope that we've given your listening audience some very practical yet supernatural things to consider in growing in relational health. I believe that the ministry that Jesus has called all of us to, whether married or unmarried, is the ministry of reconciliation. And to reconcile means that we are going to bring a relationship back from disrepair to being amicable. I believe that's the calling of every believer. And the way that that is done is something that is kind of scary for some, but it's the truth. Second Corinthians 5.19 says, this is how the Lord Jesus did it. To wit, God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not 
imputing their trespasses against them. Jesus was right, is right, will always be right, but he didn't come to be right. Mm -hmm. He came to reconcile us back to the Father, which means he actually gave up the right to be right that mm -hmm. we might be reconciled. Mm -hmm. And I tell people all the time, you can choose to be right all you want, but you will probably lose the person you love until you learn that sometimes in order to reconcile, you have to give up your right to be right. That is so, so good. Again, another reason why you want to follow Apostle Daryl O'Neill. Also, I know you haven't asked us to do this in any way, shape, or form, but if people want to be able to connect with you or support what you're doing financially, how can they do that? Thank you so very much. I'm speechless. <laughs> they can. I have uh, PayPal, which is paypal.me backslash defend covenant. We value covenant. We value keeping our word. So PayPal or through Zelle, which is just using my email address, O'Neill underscore Daryl, D-A-R-Y-L at yahoo.com. And anything that you would do in support of our ministry would be greatly appreciated. We just know that there is a reformation taking place, empowering men and women to relate in a healthy way and breaking the assignment of Babylon, confusion by mixture, keeping men and women at odds with one another. We're believing God that you're going to have healthy families, healthy relationships with your siblings. You're going to flourish in the marketplace. You're going to succeed being a part of teams because the great one lives on the inside of you. Thank you so much, you guys.